Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. very warm welcome to Book Off, a literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo and I'm thrilled to be joined in this episode by another two fabulous writers. Firstly, an author who grew up on the Isle of Wight and by his own admission has never had a grown-up job. Whilst writing his first novel, he tried his hand at various vocations, including being a singing waiter. So maybe he'll give us a taste of that a little bit later. He's just published his 16th novel, Take Nothing With You, and is here with us in bustling London, all the way from Land's End. Hello, Patrick Gale. Hello, Joe. Lovely to see you. And my second guest hails from Essex, the setting of her number one best-selling novel, The Essex Serpent, which was published a couple of years ago. She worked as a civil servant before studying an MA and PhD in creative writing, which led her to the publication of her first novel, After Me Comes the Flood. She's just finished a stint of being writer-in-residence at the Savoy in London and has also just published her third novel. So not much going on. The novel is called Melmoth and it's a very warm welcome to you, Sarah Perry. Thank you. Good morning. (laughs) Right, I've got all the words out. We know who you both are. It's an absolute pleasure to see you both here. On Halloween, obviously, uh, whenever people are listening to this, that will have been and gone, but we sit here on the morning of Hallow's Eve and I wondered, uh, is that something that is important in either of your houses? Will you be dressing up and partying later or will you be locking the doors and not thinking about it? <laughs> if I were home, I'd be hiding. I, I, I love children, but I hate them on Halloween. And I, I actually make the house quite scary by turning all the lights off in case anyone, You're, any, any child is possible. Uh, our farmhouse is in the middle of nowhere, so any child who turns up is going to be frightening because <laughs> they shouldn't be there. <laughs> um, I have a slightly strange relationship with Halloween because I was brought up in this sort of strict religious sect where we would never have had anything to do with it, um, but we did celebrate... <laughs> Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses on the door of Wittenberg Cathedral, which also happened on the 31st (laughs) of October. So some churches in our, of our ilk, uh, had Reformation Day on the 31st of October. But now, as someone who spent a lot of time thinking about gothic stuff and ghostly stuff, I'm I'm kind of quite drawn to it. So I have sore eyes from having worn white-out contact lenses last night to read ghost stories at Conway Hall. It was. Yeah, I live in the bit of the country that has so many registered witches and pagans that we have the only hospital that offers a witch alongside (laughs) the Catholic and Protestant priests. So down there, Halloween is taken as a, it's more of a religious thing. So the local stone circle gets you. Yeah, tonight. Wonderful. There will be dancing, there will be nakedness. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's much less uh, fake 
cobwebs hanging from the banister and, and an actual no, ritual. No, no. You know? It's an important time of the year. Goodness yeah, me. Yeah. Because, of course, Sarah, as you, as you alluded to, you, you're a gothic writer in a sense and, and you are obviously intrigued and interested and I suppose you have to take on a lot more info. As someone who writes in the gothic tradition, I'm very drawn to that place in between what we know to be true and what we suspect might be the case. And so there's this amazing quote from Madame de Stael, who was a French salonnier in the 18th century, and she said, I do not believe, but I am afraid. And that's kind of at the heart of, of my writing and the way I think about it all. So last night I was telling some true ghost stories, so things that had happened to me that were really terrifying. And I don't believe in ghosts, but when I was on the top floor of a cold house in St Andrews and the floorboards sank and the bed covers were pulled from my feet i was terrified even though i don't believe in ghosts so that's where that's kind of where (laughs) i live as a writer right gosh anything happened down in cornwall like that that you you're aware of patrick you haven't had a a visit yeah no i i scare myself all too easily i i love i love reading ghost stories and gothic novels and as i say we live in the middle of nowhere so when it's dark with us it's really dark I love it so proper velvety night mm. and sometimes at the worst possible moment usually when I'm trying to get the dogs in last thing at night on the far side of the farmyard I'll suddenly have a bad thought <laughs> but actually it's really supernatural it's usually to do with you know, axe murderers um, yes. it's evil people that yeah. frighten me I, I'd, I'd quite like to meet a ghost because I'd have things to ask them Yes. You know? and actually there's a tremendous egotism at work when people are scared in that way I mean why Why is the axe murderer going to be waiting for you <laughs> really no <laughs> of all people of all really people. <laughs> <laughs> well we'll talk about Melbourne in a minute Sarah because that is a book that um, uh, I have read in the dark in parts as well which uh, which was possibly not the best choice for me um, firstly Patrick can we talk about your latest novel which I mentioned take nothing with you the book came about after a trip to western supermare i think yes the unsuspecting librarians of western (laughs) invited me to come and give a reading and i'd never been and i got there a bit early and went for a walk and became entranced by how weird it is because you think it's the sea and you realize it's not the sea it's a bristol channel you think oh well there's a beach it's not a beach it's a mud flat with a bit of sand on the top and then you realize that the houses are nearly all um, no longer homes. There are lots of old people's homes and there are halfway houses for the psychiatric patients being released into the community and it is the southwest capital of drug rehabilitation. So it's not your average seaside resort. And when I got to the library, without thinking, I just said, thank you for inviting me to Western. What an awful place. Um, <laughs> and I then had to backtrack very fast. Yeah, I'm very indiscreet. I had to backtrack very fast and I sort of pledged there and then to set a novel there. Um, so of course I had, so you to, did. I had to keep going back to West End to research it. But it is a fascinating place. And when I said it was awful, what I meant was what an awful place it would have been to have been a, a an unhappy teenager. Because mm. in the 1970s, you, you, teenagers were really cut off for the most part. If you were a provincial teenager, as I was, I was only an hour from London, but London might have been on the moon um, because you didn't have the internet. Public transport was really bad. Trains stopped at nine o'clock. So someone like Weston was not a good place to have been a rather fat, gay teenager. Mm. Yeah. Fascinating that because, I, I, of course, when, when you say Weston Supermare, I just think seaside town and I just yeah. think it's... Take another look. You really needs, it needs another look. It has a dark yeah, yeah. underbelly, yeah. this Western. <laughs> I'd describe the book as a sad comedy. Do you think that would be Absolutely accurate? Absolutely accurate, yes. Yes, I think of it as a comedy, and yet people on Twitter keep telling me how it's making them cry. <laughs> um, but I think I think that's because it's a comedy about loss. The book is absolutely shot through with, with loss. There's a lot of 
death around the corners. Um, so the death doesn't the deaths don't actually happen for the most part in the course of the story. They happen between one story and the other because mm. it's two stories at once. We have a story in the present day and the hero's childhood back in the 1970s. So there's a very strong tension between the two and a sense of all that's gone. But it's also quite a psychotherapeutic comedy in that it's about confronting your past in order to let it go, in order to be happy. Yes, indeed. I'll turn to Sarah and Melmoth, as I mentioned. This is your third novel now. And, of course, the novel that followed The Essex Serpent, which uh, we were just talking about earlier before we started the podcast, and I was gloating about my white copy of the first edition proof that I've got, <laughs> which apparently are very rare now. Yes, they are. <laughs> and you don't have a first edition I gave of your away own all book my to first you? edition hardbacks well because I firstly I tend not to think of books as having monetary value mm. beyond purchasing them from a shop and secondly it never I'm not I'm not proud enough for it to have occurred to me oh squirrel this away for the future <laughs> so I just yeah I gave them all away um, which is a shame. <laughs> but, is a, well you might get one back yeah, I might get you one might back. get one back so was sitting down to write this book after what was a, a very successful second novel, a, a, a challenge for you? Or had you already had the idea? I'd already had the idea because I tend to have an idea for a book and then do nothing for about two years while it festers. Mm. And then, and I'm, I think this is actually fairly common, and then start the book when I really know it um, and begin at the beginning and write through to the end. So I have a writing time that's very short and <laughs> intense and I don't clean my teeth or leave the house. <laughs> um, but before that, there'll be two or three years if I know exactly what I'm doing and it's sort of going around my head. So I'd had the idea for Melmoth before The Essex Serpent came out. Um, but it was a strange experience. I, I remember going for coffee, cocktails actually, uh, with a friend who'd had a vastly successful novel. I mean, really beyond anything that anyone could possibly hope for for their book. And I said to my friend, what will we do? Because it's just whatever we write, it's downhill from here. <laughs> and, she, and my friend said, would you rather you were never on the hill in the first place? Which is a very good thing to say. So when I was working on Melmoth, I knew that I couldn't replicate what had happened with the Essex Serpent because it was this strange vortex of word of mouth, uh, amazing cover, yes. <laughs> timing, you know, that you, you can't replicate it. You can't go into a laboratory mm. and say, how do we do this? Because it's about readers and booksellers and this kind of strange alchemy. And for a while I thought, oh, it's just, you know, all downhill from here. And then I thought, oh, just... Get over yourself and <laughs> write the book that you want to write. And well, Mel write Moss it for the, you. Absolutely. Well, and Melmoth at that time was exactly, exactly the novel that I had to write for myself. I'd been through quite a difficult time with my health. I'd suffered a great deal of pain. I was very depressed about the state of the world. I was not going to write a charming <laughs> neo-Victorian novel. It was going to be something really kind of bleak and dark with lots of torture in it. So <laughs> Bleak and dark it is. Yes. Um, tell us about Helen Franklin. And about Melbourne. Um, well, I'm really interested in um, sort of pushing your um, craft and, and not allowing myself to keep doing the same thing. So um, I found myself writing a book with a charming heroine uh, with a lot of wit about her and set in East Anglia. And then I thought, oh, just, <laughs> you can't keep doing this. So I decided to make Helen Franklin the opposite of the heroine of The Essex Serpent and make her drab and small and rather unlikable and very dull, because part of the premise of the book is that it's very dull people who often do very terrible things. And it's not always the very charismatic and charming people with excellent clothes who lead an exciting life. It's often the other way around. So Helen Franklin lives alone in Prague, 
denying herself good food, company, warmth, nice clothes, because for 20 years she's been punishing herself for something that she did. And she finds out about the legend of Melmoth the Witness, this cursed being who is watching and knows everything that you've done. And she uncovers this legend and soon she starts to think that Melmoth is watching her. (laughs) (laughs) And as I said, I I did read it at at points in the flat on my own and in the dark and everything, and it, it does... It does do what perhaps you intended it to do. I yeah, think. I mean, it's I chilling. Thinking, I just really, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, so I won't. But um, I've, of course I, you can. I, I, I honestly said to my husband, "I'm going to really shit people up this time," <laughs> and that's what I set out yeah. to do. And now I feel really bad at the extent to which people have been shit up. <laughs> <laughs> so people saying that they've kept the book in the freezer overnight. Quite a few people can't finish it. My husband can't finish it. One of my closest Your friends. Your husband can't finish it. I've heard people say that they they started feeling the book itself was bad. Yes, mm. yes, and the, they had to move. The, Object out of was the room. emanating stuff, yeah. which reminds me of being a child. And when I was a child, I read far too many rather adult horror yes, stories. Me too. And my my mother taking them away physically, just putting them in a cupboard, yeah. and saying, "You can have these when you're 13." Yes. Um, yeah, as if as objects, yeah, they have some yeah, sort of medieval. malevolence about yes. them. Absolutely. Yeah. And I and I, you know, I remember Susan Hill who wrote the Woman in Black having to move it away from her nightstand because she couldn't sleep with the book next to her. And I I know why because I wrote it, and you know why because you've read it. I can't say for <laughs> you can't say read, now. But no, a, there is a reason why it's so frightening for people and it's to do with the narrative voice and the conclusion um, and I feel really bad I don't want to upset my friends but equally I'm and really people thrilled people love being scared they do they love it it's yeah. very close to sex it is it is <laughs> it's, exactly. yeah, it's why the great dating movies are all frightening <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> but do you think too it's to do with the um, preying on the reader it's after reading is something you do in silence yeah. on your own exactly you know, you've, you've created the perfect atmosphere yeah. around you to be scared yeah and also, I really like books that actually have a dialogue with the reader so that you've got no choice. You're reading this thing and you're like, stop talking to me. So the book begins with the word look and all the way through the book, the narrator is saying, look. And you're like, I'm reading it. I can't. Say, what do you want? <laughs> I don't want to look. Um, so, yeah, it's just been a really interesting experience watching the reception, watching the critical reception after having a very critically successful book, watching the reader's reception after they were expecting possibly more historical mm-hmm. fiction with plenty of charm and life. Did you find yourself actively looking at the critical reception then? <laughs> so, yes, <laughs> because I'd had a very easy ride. <laughs> now I no longer look. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, the book began with two, and I'm, I'm very indiscreet as well. Is that okay? I, I mean, I just have no filters at all. So basically I had two shocking hatchet jobs in the Times and the Sunday Times two weeks before publication uh-huh. and they basically said this book is a failure, it's an embarrassment, it's amateur um, you know, just re- like really sticking the knife in uh, two weeks before publication so like I had no chance to enjoy anything because like, like right from the beginning they'd called it and um, uh, subsequent to that it's been great but my whole response to the book is now predicated on these sort of tall poppy cutting reviews and so now I don't look it up because I can't bear to like type into Google and find even though actually it's been amazing since yeah. then oh I do so. Google alerts have you discovered those uh, yeah I did yeah and I can't do it's it it's quite though. awful because it means every day begins with a yeah um, how do you cope <laughs> though when it's negative I, I embrace it. Do actually. you really? Yeah, I try to. I treat them like characters. I try to understand oh, them. What's okay. the motivation? Motivation behind this right. this cow? <laughs> this horrible <laughs> review. You know. Yeah. Uh, a... <laughs> I have to say, when I, when these reviews in the in the 
right-wing Murdoch press <laughs> came out. I was like, what's what's going on here? After yeah. the initial shock, I was like, that's really interesting. Because no, I, I would advise, I always advise writers never, ever to scroll down on, on Amazon. You know yes. Amazon reviews? Yeah, Your yeah, publicist yeah. will make sure that the five-star ones are all helpful <laughs> and at the top, do not scroll down because yeah, yeah, that's yeah. where that's the bad where stuff, the, the yeah. really bad stuff What goes. do you think the motivation is for this stuff? That's what interests me. It's trolling. They're trolls. But what really. about when newspapers do it? It's exactly the same. They're just trolls who are being paid. I mean, amazing. Um, but the trouble is, I I think it's quite curative as a novelist if you do regular reviewing yourself. Yes. Because it reminds you, and judging yeah. prizes, because yeah, it reminds absolutely. you how totally subjective yeah, yeah. the process is. And frequently, just the wrong book arrives on the wrong desk. Yeah. And it's tough and you just have to swallow yes, it. Yes, and you mm. have to learn. One of the reasons I was so shocked, and, and actually, there's been quite a few very savage reviews around at the moment, not just of me, but of, of also of really good writers, Kate Atkinson, you know, like people that you think no one's going to give a bad review to and they're, they're really spiteful. And, and I find that very interesting because I'm a critic and I regularly review. And I was once asked to review a book that was a bad book. It was historically inaccurate, mm. meant like really, really naughtily so, you know, because it was serving an agenda. And the whole time I wrote this thousand word review, which had to be honest and had to deal with its faults and its failings, I thought, if you meet this man, you need to be able to shake his hand and feel no embarrassment at all because it needs to be done with grace and it needs to be done politely and it needs to be, but not in that kind of like delighted, you know, the kind of review that says, (sighs) it pains me to say, and you think it doesn't pain you at all. Yeah, no, exactly. The trouble is that there is this conflict because the literary editors, for them, a bad review is good copy. Yes, Um, yeah, exactly. People will, yeah, people people will read the bad review with with a good review. They don't really notice it. Your yeah, publicist notice it. You yeah, notice yeah. it. But, <laughs> but nobody else does. But the weird thing yeah. as well, I do find sometimes you have a, a filthy review or you think of it as a filthy review and your friends just register it as, you know, oh, she got two She's columns in the, in the Times. Yeah, yeah, And that's exactly. all they notice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I used to my, photo my, my elderly mother would be terribly proud of some <laughs> awful review. She'd just say, well, everyone was talking about yeah. it, darling. I had, okay. I had a slight <laughs> contretemps with one of my sisters who took a photo of a review of Melmoth in Private Eye because right. she just couldn't believe it. She was like, it's Private Eye. They you've only review you. Because, eye. And there was a little caricature of me. Oh, with you've with really arrived then. Yes. And, and she, she couldn't understand why I was like, why did you show me this mean man? I mean, it's, a bit, it's Private Eye. It's, this is like, this is fame. So, yeah, it's our, our, we're yeah. much more tender. But maybe I should set up Google Alerts and just face it. And also, you know, the thing is, and I, my, my best friend's an opera composer, and he, he said this to me uh, over my debut novel. He said, if you're going to take the good reviews to heart, you have to take the bad reviews to heart. Yes. You can't choose to bask in the praise and go, oh, you know, my prose is just lovely. My characterization yes. is I'm so only astute. Good when I'm, good. I'm only good when I'm good. Right. Yeah. So you have to either listen to both of them or, li- or listen to neither. You cannot relish the good mm-hmm. and get angry about the bad, which is Otherwise, wise, that's narcissism. I it's yeah. total yeah. narcissism. I mean, the great yeah. thing with Google Alerts is, as well, is that they remind you that you're so unimportant because you, you, you just enter for it to give you an alert when the title of your book yes. shows up. Yeah. And you will suddenly find lots of crime reports about, you know, <laughs> Mr. Melmoth said that his That's cat right. was dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're so yeah, not about exactly. you, which is there's, quite there's nice. There's actually a, a town in KwaZulu Natal called Melmoth. Um, oh, there you go. So back before I got scared of Melmoth. it, I was like, oh, oh what's happening in my favourite town? In- <laughs> well, I, I, I've still got Google Alerts set up for my, my TV show, Man in an Orange Shirt. Yes. And it seems that 
people are always committing crimes wearing orange shirts. <laughs> the man in an orange shirt was seen leaving the supermarket. You know, this is making me feel that I did the best thing for me to do is to go and have a cup of coffee and, and set up Google Earth and just get over myself. Yeah, you do. It's inspired and, you, know, you to do it. Yeah, thank you very much. I Any can go time. now. <laughs> and it's interesting you said about judging. You just recently judged yes. Desmond Elliott. Yeah. Uh, and Patrick, you've judged prizes before. But I've prizes judged the Costa before, ones. The Costa yes. before. Um, you know, and it is... So interesting when you get three, four, five people in a room together. Mm-hmm. We're all going to like different things, yeah. you know, and we're going to we're going to have that big open discussion about yeah. it, and we're going to point out the things we love, and other people are going to say, "Well, that, I didn't like it for this reason." So yeah, it is subjective, as you said, Patrick. Mm. That's just the way it is, and you've got to maybe think and about it. Like certainly, that. I don't know about you, but when I was judging the Costa, the biggest pile of books in my study were the interesting failures. <laughs> So Absolutely. they weren't going to win, yeah, but they yeah. were still really yeah, good books. Yeah, yeah. Actually, what they needed was a better editing job. Yes, um, yes. But but it, it, that was quite cheering as well. It made yeah. me realise just because you haven't been shortlisted doesn't mean the book Absolutely, is rubbish. Yeah. It might be you're not quite there. Yeah, yeah. You know? And one of the things that I found really interesting was that when we were judging the Desmond Elliott, the winner was the winner right from the start. We all went, that's amazing. And we went, yeah, it's going to win, isn't it? Yeah, do we have to do all the judging? Yeah, we do. Okay, fine. Um, and so that was really interesting. But also there was one book, and I won't say which it is, that was on the long list. And I really disliked it. I really did. But as we talked about it with the other judges who passionately liked it, I realised that my dislike was subjective and that all of the things that the other judges were saying was totally true as oh, well. So it made the mm. shortlist because I could see that it wasn't a bad book, you know, it yeah. wasn't badly written or, or sort of uh, unpleasant or badly constructed. I, I simply didn't like it. Mm. And that wasn't enough to keep it off the shortlist in comparison to other books which, you know, didn't have the champions in the room. So it was really, yeah, like, and yeah. as a writer, the next time I'm not shortlisted for something, I'll just... Flash back to the Desmond Elliot and think this is fine. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. Although there is something slightly. I mean, it's not fine because you should be on the shortlist. <laughs> yeah. When I wasn't shortlisted for the Baileys, I bought some leopard print Valentino brogues. <laughs> I was really pleased with myself. Um, yeah, it's not fine because it's okay to want to win stuff. Yes, of course it is. There's it's pressure. fine. Yeah. And there's a lot of pressure. Do you think there's too much emphasis placed on prizes? On prizes? <sighs> I, the trouble is that again, it feeds it feeds into journalism, and the the, the press love the prizes, they, yeah. and they love to, they love being able to run a story about yes. who's been left and, off, and, and they, it shouldn't this one they, shouldn't have won like Milkman. Yes, and they a... love the fact that there are big beasts who are being passed over. Yeah. It's all very tawdry and yeah. very very predictable. Yes, it um, is. But I think the prizes do matter because they keep fiction and publishing in the public Abs- domain. Yeah, I agree. You, yeah. The well, they the keep people talking about books as well. Yes. Don't they? Yeah. they actually. Yeah. They actually keep they put books back on the pages on the websites etc yeah. on social media for people to be oh you know and it can give a writer the confidence to go oh, okay oh well I can't be that bad then so one of the amazing things about the Desmond Elliott Prize is that the prize which is not insignificant is intended specifically to support the next book the writer's next yes, book right, yeah. um, buy some time absolutely and so many debut writers of literary fiction and I was in this position myself, have very little money. And a prize makes a huge difference. I won the, after me comes a flood, won the East Anglian Book of the Year Award and I had a £1,000 as a prize. And I bought my first fully functioning laptop that could work without a cable so I could work in all different places. And it was slender and light and lasted for years until I broke it by hurling my mobile phone at it. <laughs> um, but it made a, it made a big material difference mm, to my writing yeah. life that I had £1,000 to buy a MacBook. Well, you could say the Essex Serpent wouldn't have come around without 
that. Oh, I've said so in the press. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. No, it's, it's fascinating prizes. And I think it's very interesting what you said. Essentially, those that prize money is buying time. Yeah. You know, what it's doing is allowing... Yes authors to breathe a little bit and and go and I'll write the book I really want to and I'll take all my time yeah. because I can I've yeah. got the luxury and talking about the man booker as you mentioned Milkman there Anna Burns yeah. one also someone like Daisy Johnson who is on the short list you yes. know the, the youngest author ever to be yes. for a debut novel as well and you just think that's such a confidence boost yeah. as well isn't it yeah. you know um, I, I owed my my debut in being published to, to uh, being shortlisted for what was it? Was only the there was a one off. It was the Costa, no, the Whitbread. Was the then. Whitbread, that's the what Whitbread it is. short yeah. story prize. They only did it once, but all the shortlisted stories were published in the book. And I think oh. at least half of us it led to our um, first contracts. It's a really, I think they're really difficult. I mean, they're to do a, a really good short story is that's much why harder. I wrote Sherlock Holmes. Uh, the only short stories I can write are ones that have an accepted form. Because I understand them. So I've written a Sherlock Holmes short story and a ghost story. Right. And that's all I can do because I understand the form of those stories. But literary short stories, uh, they just leave me completely bewildered because I like rules. And I'm like, what do you mean you can just <laughs> describe someone sitting having a cup of tea and actually it's about their childhood? No, I can't. <laughs> so I read them with complete awe, you know, like George Saunders or Sarah Hall yes. or whatever. Yeah, just yeah. completely mm. awestruck. Strange misconception that you write a short story and then you take the training wheels off your bike and yeah. you can write your novel. And, and I hate it when you eavesdrop in a bookshop and you hear somebody pick up a collection and say, oh, it's only stories. And they put it oh, down. Dear. Yeah. Do, you, yeah. do you go over there, Patrick? Yeah. I do, I do. I buttonhole them and I say, actually, you know, this is the perfect bedside book. You read yeah, one yeah. story every night on yeah. retiring. You know. I've been reading much Raymond more Carver. Short Everyone should have Raymond Carver yeah. by their bedside. Yeah, yeah. They are perfect. I've got Shirley Jackson by my Oh, God, she's so good. She's so good. Her dark tales. Yeah, the, the thing with Shirley Jackson and Carver, actually, is, for me, what, what defines the perfect short story is the way it's like a seed. It may only be four pages long, but yep. it kind of erupts yeah, in your yeah. mind afterwards and carries on yeah. going, which is why they so often make really good movies. Yes. 
um, because you know, the, the the screenwriter can open them out. Yeah, mm. yeah, 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 yeah. And I I got obsessed with Somerset Maugham's short stories about ten years ago. I read all of them, and there's an amazing one about a pearl necklace, a woman wearing a pearl necklace on a cruise, and I, and and it just everything hinges on one dinner party, one pearl necklace, and it's but actually it's all about marriage and deceit and money and adultery and desire and all of this stuff. But it's just a dinner party on a boat and a woman wearing a pearl necklace. Mm, It's amazing. Short story. I think the love of short stories has come through here. Yes. From all of us, actually. But in in the book of which we're going to turn to in a moment, that's where you get to bring a a book that you think we should all read, that everyone should have in their collection or have read. Um, I don't believe there are short story collections in these ones. There's two two very different books which is exactly what we want so in a moment we'll turn to that a very quick note patrick with you and and just going back to take nothing with you um because we didn't really explore eustace and we didn't really talk about the character and the plot much so just fill us in a little bit about that and also about your love of classical music or comes through you know yes eustace Eustace is a a little boy whose life is completely changed by the cello yeah he starts to learn the cello and it's like his magnetic north suddenly it gives meaning to his life and brings discipline to his life and we see how because we see him as an adult as well we see how this has affected him forever but it's also a bit like the go-between so he doesn't realize but his cello lessons with this very glamorous young woman in clifton are actually um providing the perfect pretext for a very dangerous, adulterous affair, um, which he enables unwittingly. But unlike in The Go-Between, Eustace keeps his innocence. So it's, it's a, it, it's, it mm. plays with the reader because the reader is wanting him to become a professional cellist, even though they know he won't, because when they first meet him, he's a recovering banker. Um, but they are also expecting him to lose his innocence and, and, and suddenly realise what's going on. And... Of course, he never does. John Boyne picked The Go-Between as his book of choice on this podcast. I assume you're a big fan as well. I am. One of the reasons why Eustace is called Eustace is because the 1970s was the last great flowering of L.P. Hartley's popularity. He had two novels filmed and uh, a trilogy of novels brilliantly televised by the BBC, the Eustace and Hilda trilogy. But I think his popularity waned very quickly, or his reputation waned, because his silly family, after his death, didn't let Penelope Fitzgerald write a Watsonall biography, because mm. she was going to out him, and they said, you're not to out him. Oh, right. um, and I think there has been no authorised biography because of this. Um, Oh, and, really? and the English like nothing better than to rake over the sex life of a dead author. <laughs> yes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and it's no big deal, really. Uh-huh. And it, it adds something to our understanding of his novels as well. Mm, absolutely. So he is due for a big revival. And you're Another your great name short forward. story writer. Actually, yeah. L.P. Hartley wrote the most frightening story ever about a lift, a haunted lift. <laughs> really? Oh, God, it's so good. I'll find it and send it Please to you, Sarah. Do. It's really yeah. scary. A child terrified by a ghost in a lift. Amazing. It's very good. Oh, I like the sound of that. I yeah. can see you're, you're, yeah, yeah. you're into that, Sarah, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> so to the book off then, um, you've both uh, given me your choices. Um, Sarah, would you like to go first or second? I really don't mind. Oh, you, all right. Well, I'll give you this choice then. Would you like to be honked <laughs> when your time is up or would you like to be rung out can I have the bell you can please? have the bell absolutely yeah. I'm going to honk you out then okay. Patrick, but you get to decide if you go first or second I'll go second you're going to go second okay <laughs> see what you're up against eh? um, before you start Sarah just tell us the book that you have chosen I have chosen We That Are Young by Preeti Teneja okie doke well you've got three minutes you can use all three 
or not, if you choose to, to tell us all I about this book. <laughs> I'm just going to keep sort of, going. I'll flag it up yeah, to you. Okay. Um, and, and obviously, when you hit your three, I'm going to be ringing you out. Lovely. So you've got three minutes on the clock to tell us why we should read this book. Preeti Tanoja has written one of the most daring and ambitious books that I've read in a long time and also the most enjoyable book that I read this past year, I would say. It's called We That Are Young and it is King Lear set in contemporary India. So there are two delicious things about this book. One of them is that you can just read it as a fantastically absorbing, occasionally violent, politically astute, feminist, textured, vivid, compelling family saga set in a rich banking family, sort of rich commercial family in India with servants and a a patriarch and daughters who are cutting their hair off to rebel against the norms. Um, So you can read it in that way or you can be very... uh, deliciously excited to pick through it and find all the stuff about it that is King Lear. So you have the head of the family, who is Lear himself, who has these three children and he has this huge estate and they're wondering who's going to take the business on after he has died, which is just like King Lear dividing his kingdom. Um, There is the daughter who is a little sanctimonious and refuses to show her father how much she loves him. She's in there too. There's even things like a scene that is the um, equivalent of Gloucester having his eyes put out. There's poor Tom. Poor Tom's a cold. It's just amazing. And one of the things that I find so exciting about it is that it is absolutely in the 19th century tradition of novel writing. So in some ways, it could have been written in the 19th century in the sense that it has, uh, it inhabits a huge cast of characters. It writes about a city in an incredibly vibrant and textured way. There's food and clothing and misunderstandings and vanishings and all the rest of it. But it's also totally of the now, absolutely of the now. Um, I also think it's very important because writers of colour tend to be, I suspect, expected to write books which show a slightly kind of orientalist view of their background. So what a white readership tends to be very comfortable with books that have like a jacaranda tree against the sunset and it's about a boy and his mother or something. This is a young woman from an Indian family writing about the India that she knows and the money and the food and the manners and all of the rest of it. Um, and it's so important that she had that voice and to be able to do it in a novel that is fully 19th century in its structure, fully 21st century in all its concerns and considerations and its policy politics and also is a remake of King Lear is absolutely astonishing. Um, It won this year's Desmond Elliott Prize and I think it's going to live for years and years and years. Ah, fantastic. I'm exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) You brought it in just under the wire then as well. That was incredibly professional. In fact, Sarah's timekeeping has been spot on. She arrived exactly untyped. I mean, it it couldn't have been more accurate. It's beaten into me as a child. I was early for my own wedding, you know. (laughs) Just always spot on. Just always around. Wow, fantastic. That was a great pitch. Um, We that are young. Um, Thank you for that. Now then, Patrick, it's over to you. Uh, Before we start, could you tell us the book that you're putting forward? Yes, it's a classic. It's The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton. Uh, Published in 1920. 1920. Goodness. Uh, Right, well, there's three minutes on the clock then, and it's over to you to tell us about your choice. So, Edith Wharton won the Pulitzer Prize for this novel. She was the first woman to win it. It is a great feminist satire. 
Um, it is a satire of male romanticism. So at its heart is a 19th century courting couple, Newland and, and May, who are rich, beautiful, they have all the blessings of existence. And their courtship is almost immediately disrupted on the night when they announce their engagement by the arrival of a long-lost cousin of May's, who is now a countess, American girl, but she's been married off to an evil count in, in Europe. And she has come home because her marriage has gone wrong. And of course, Newland falls in love with her. Where this novel is so brilliant is it's entirely written from the point of view of Newland, from this male perspective. And we fall rapidly into his way of thinking. We think that he is out to rescue this lovely woman who he's in love with, who he's not allowed to marry. Dare he wreck his marriage that's about to happen? That he does get married but is still in love with Ellen. What will happen? And only at the very end do we realise that actually all the women in the book have known all along what's going on. And it's actually a novel about female realism. And this man at the middle just hasn't the first idea. It's devastatingly funny. Anyone who saw the Scorsese film um, has to understand Scorsese gets it wrong because Scorsese foolishly is a male romantic. He totally buys into it, so he sells it as a tragic story. The book is funny. It's very funny. It's, it's funny as only a book can be when it's written by a woman who has really understood the cost of marriage, the cost of being a clever woman who wants to be independent and choose her own friends. And also uh, it's written by a woman who understands brutality because the fascinating thing is, although it's set in the 19th century, in the 1870s, it was written in the 1920s, after the Great War, after Freud. This is not a 19th century novel. It's actually a revenge novel as well because it's a novel about how Wharton's mother, who she hated, became a monster. So you realise what she's doing very cheekily is to write a novel about her own parents' courtship. So Newland and May are actually her parents. And May, who starts out as this sweet all-American girl, ends up becoming a monster. So it's, an, it's a feminist novel about female monstrosity. It's very, very bold. It's funny. It's short. And it will change your life. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Let me honk you out. Uh, brought that in Goodness, just just under two and a half there as well. You got everything in. That was. Uh, you, take a breath now, Patrick, as well. <laughs> it took you all three three minutes to you know get back there, Sarah, yes, just to get yes. your breath back. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm desperate to read that now. I'm not speaking to Edith Wharton because of Ethan Throne. Ethan oh, God. Well, that's early and weird. I know. It just the, put the, me off her. And, and the thing is, Age of Innocence is late. It's 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 a masterpiece because she's finally learned how she's to do how it. To, okay, fine. Yeah. We're back on speaking yeah. terms yeah. with Edith no, Wharton. No, no it's amazing. It. Okay. It's amazing and it's funny. And she was clearly the most formidable woman. Yeah. I mean... I'm, I'm adapting it for the BBC oh, at the wonderful. moment, which is why I, I'm completely under its skin. Yes. And it's been a very odd experience going back to a masterpiece that I just thought, oh, it's a masterpiece, and having to take it apart and having to recognise the flaws. Yes. Because it's got huge structural yeah, problems, yeah. <laughs> which you don't notice when you're reading it yeah. as a novel, but when you're having to adapt it for the screen. Yeah. yeah. All wonderful. that shit. Both fabulous pictures, actually. Um, you, you both maybe want to read these books and I haven't read either. I'm going straight out to buy yours. Good. Yeah, oh, I mean, amazing. I think that's... So that, as you said, it's, it, it won the Desmond Elliott, uh, brand new writer. Yes. And it just sounds, like you said, so clever, that weaving of taking a Shakespeare. Yeah, and and the, the ambition of it, you know. It I'm going to write a book this long this set in India. All right, then. <laughs> All right let's just do it, shall <laughs> we? Not, <laughs> well, that's the joy of first novels, yeah, though. Yeah. Until you've got an audience, you just think, yeah. what the hell? I'll yeah, just do exactly. it. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. 
But then when when you were talking, Patrick, about this book that, that you know I probably should have read, being a classic, and well, she's not taught in England. This right, is the thing. I see. Okay, yeah, so maybe is, I... thanks to women's studies and the growth in women's studies, Wharton is beginning to become part of the canon. But yeah, you know, she's a she she should be a big feminist icon yeah. in this yeah. country, and she isn't yet. And this idea of 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 her, you know, it being very funny and not being pitched as a tragedy, of being a short book, of being witty and and you know feminist satire, I just think is is so what we need. And uh, so I think based on the pictures, I'm going to take home Edith Wharton. Oh, <laughs> and I'm also going to go out and I'm <laughs> going to explore. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the author is called Pretty Tenator. Pretty Tenator. Okay, you've also sold that book to me I'm as well. So. <laughs> um, and I like that you were both into each other's pitch. That's a yeah. nice thing. Totally. We're all here just to talk about books, really. Um, are you thinking about the next novel at all? Or are you just sort of enjoying the fact that your books have been published and that you can just relax for a bit? I have the next two planned. Oh, God, me too. Really? This never happens to me. Really? I've sent the second one on a travel very slowly by boat plane around the world because I cannot afford to think about it. But you're the first writer I've met who does the same thing I do, which is to spend a a few years just thinking and not writing. I, I think I don't think writer's block exists. I think what people call writer's block it's is, just is starting just too early. To They've yeah. started too yeah, early. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know that it's not time to start. Yeah. I'll, I'll sit down and I'll sort of open a document and I think, no, it's not ready. It's not yeah. ready. And I, I'm, I'm not very seasoned, but this is my fourth book that I'm about to start work on that I'm thinking about. And I think it's okay. It's all right. Soon you'll have the opening line, maybe the opening paragraph, which I often memorise, and then you know. And then I'd sit down and I work like a maniac for months, yeah. and then it's done. And so I have one that's just just about to come out, and then one <laughs> here. Yeah. Um, and I can't wait. I mean, it's touring a book is a privilege. It's amazing to be asked to do things. It's wonderful to meet readers. But I live to write, and so on the twenty fifth of November, I will enter a hiatus of some months before I go abroad again and mm. um, I'm going to write. So we're on the same cycle. I'm stopping. 28th of November is really? my... <laughs> it's mentally, it's in yeah, my diary. Yeah. Yeah, unplug. Literary unplug. Festival. I've got, yeah. <laughs> really, yeah. Well, see, yeah. <laughs> and then I'm just going to go and sit in my room. Yeah. I have a study with bookcases and a fireplace and I'm going to light the fire and nobody I, nobody will be able to get me out of my study. I'll be like a snail in the shower. Wow. read. What I, I um, long yeah, to do I is all read. the reading. I have piles of Read. There are all sorts of books that relate to my next novel, and I Absolutely. just I just want to. So I'm sort of moving on from consciously gothic fiction because I think of Melmoth as being the last book in a gothic trilogy, um, and so all the reading that I've done and all the kind of medical research and historical research that I've done just it's just going to be moved away from the little bookshelf on my desk, and it will be filled with a new tone. And a new set of voices, and I, I'm so ex- I'm so excited. I'm so excited. <laughs> it's lovely. You're both in a similar place, and it's obviously a great place to be. And I love your description of being unplugged, Patrick. I think that's oh, brilliant. I can't wait. Well, social media is a tyranny. I know it, Twitter and book selling and book reading is a perfect match. Yeah, um, you know, it does work, but it's also a tyranny, um, especially if you want to read books that aren't new. 
because no one is marketing dead authors. But sometimes I think writers really need to go away quietly, sit in an armchair and read a 19th century novel or whatever. This is Um, why Backlisted is the, if you'll forgive me, such a good podcast. (laughs) No, it is. I was going to say the best podcast. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Yes, it is. People resurrecting these books and they may be 200 years old or they may be 50 years old or they may just be, you know, something from Hilary Mantel's Backlist, you know. Um, And it's just amazing. And, And you're right, you get sucked in to something that we benefit from because our books are marketed via Twitter. Of course. But also course. as a but reader, it's stress, it's you're stressful. Sort of, it's oh, so yeah. stressful. I've hmm. just deactivated, I deactivated my Twitter account for three months. I was very happy. And then I came back and the intention was that I would do a few carefully considered tweets just to let people know Melmoth is out. I'm at this event. And of course... What happened? Three o'clock in the morning, scrolling through, checking things, searching my name. It's like crack cocaine. It's just awful. So I've had to deactivate again. I'm an addict. I am an addict. It's sad but true. I can't do it. I'm a great believer in freedom. There's an app called Freedom. Yes, it's wonderful. And and I I use that religiously. Yeah. When Um, I'm writing, when I'm deep in drafting, I I block the internet for exactly 55 minutes, get my head down, put noise-excluding headphones on, and write a couple of thousand words, and then... Come back, Come put the hour. internet back on. It's like, well, I use freedom to turn email into a postman. It brings back the romance of the post. So uh, I can say all my emails are going to arrive at 2pm, which oh, is when my brain is good. going downhill. Yes. And they ping, 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 they all yeah, come in. Yeah. And then I'll allow myself maybe an hour okay. of reading emails and answering them. Yes. And then we turn it off Very again. Very good. It's lovely. Yeah. In fact, that's one of the joys of living in Cornwall is that the broadband on the train is so bad. Oh, so you have to just read and look at. You the have to read, or yeah. if you, or you can empty your inbox on the oh, train okay. because yeah. you won't get any responses. What I hate is when you're <laughs> emptying the inbox and it's filling it up again. Back. It's like some terrible yeah, grim yeah, fairy yeah. tale. <laughs> <laughs> the bottomless bucket. Yes. <laughs> this app sounds great. The freedom. The freedom is very, very good. good. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. A, a sly fourteen-year-old started saying to me, "Oh, there's a workaround to, to let you get around it." I said, "No, don't tell me. Don't tell me. Don't, I don't want it to work." Yeah, yeah. Because you can't, in theory, you can't override it. You have to close your. You tried to cheat even. If you close the computer, you try to go back on, and Freedom says you said you, said. you didn't want anything for And you can blacklist hours. websites, so you just can yeah. never get on them. So my PC that I work on, actually on my desk, Goodreads, Amazon, uh, all of this stuff is just blacklisted. I just, right. Twitter, just can't, I just can't get can't on it. Oh, yeah. but kittens in fancy dress. I know. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> you know you want it. I know. <laughs> Halloween is tough. Yeah, people's dogs dressed up yeah. as pumpkins. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Um, well, that's all we've got time for, but thank you both for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure, and we could waffle on for, for many more um, hours, I think. Best of luck with, with the next two books that you've both got in your heads. Heavens. <laughs> <laughs> um, enjoy the unplugging, uh, and enjoy uh, the rest of this year, and enjoy the rest of what's happening with your latest novels, because, thank of course, you. we mustn't forget that they are new to us, not to you, but they are to us, and they are the... the both absolutely fabulous books. Take Nothing With You is published by Tinder Press and Melmoth is published by Serpent's Tale. Both books available now. Sarah Perry, Patrick Gale, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.